Welcome to episode 407 with my guest, Sophia Alexandra. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, normally, I give you guys a bunch of bullshit up front about where you can find this and that. And uh, I was going to give you some updates on my life and stuff like that up front. But um, I'm going to do that after the interview. And I just want to read this thing that was written by a former guest. Uh, her name is Kalechi Ubozo. And she's in the movie uh, The S Word, which is about um, suicide and suicide survivors. And she wrote this thing that is just so beautiful. I wanted to uh, read it. And uh, it's an excerpt from uh, a book that uh, she and some other people are putting together. Uh, she's a co-editor of it. It's called We've Been Too Patient, an Anthology of Voices from Radical Mental Health. And um, it's supposed to be out in the summer of 2019 from uh, North Atlantic Books through Penguin Random House. And... Um, the piece she wrote is called uh, She Wasn't Crazy. And uh, it goes, uh, is that what you're supposed to say? <laughs> and it goes, a little something like this. It goes, she wasn't crazy, but the world had a way of making her feel so. You try being a black goth girl in Stone Mountain, Georgia. She liked vampires and Morrissey and how the darkness wrapped around her like a warm, familiar blanket. She was always too sensitive and reactive, felt every feeling at a high voltage. She wasn't crazy, but she said whatever the fuck she wanted, spilled words, spilled words from her lips like red wine on the white carpets. She left many stains. They called her Crazy K, and it stuck. She never slept. She crawled up fire escapes to hang off the edge. Longingly looking down, she flirted with death. She wanted to know if she let go, if she would be free. She imagined a place where all people loved her. She wasn't crazy, but when Grandma, the ultimate matriarch, who kissed her thick, eye-lined face and marveled at her choice of combat boots with fishnets, died, the darkness welled up and started choking her. She wanted to stop the world and get off. When the world ends, but you're still alive, there is something crazy about that. She was 13 when she wrote her first suicide note. It was on a post-it. She wasn't crazy, but succinct as fuck. She wasn't crazy, just honest. She didn't want to live. She got messy, and a friend found the note and called her mom. All her mom could say is, Why, 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 baby? The words left her. Was she crazy? But she didn't feel crazy. They stripped her down like an animal, took her shoelaces, put her on suicide watch while she squirmed on an uncomfortable cot. She felt crazy then. The psych ward for kids smelled like every hospital, bleach with the stench of death and disappointment. Even in this place, there was psych ward hierarchy. They separated the kids. The frail-looking teens never made eye contact, but the other kids got it. They all dreamed of McDonald's french fries and getting out of this sterile purgatory, this life-sized pause button. One day, little Christine tried to open the locked door, but it wouldn't budge. The security guard said, we lock it to keep the crazy people out. She laughed uncontrollably. In hindsight, she could see that he was right. Because when she left the psych ward, 
she created a papier-mâché mask of glitter and light with eating disorders from the, quote, crazy kids. She smiled until her eyes bugged out. She stopped wearing liquid eyeliner and made everyone feel comfortable. She said all the right things and lied about the darkness. See, all better now. The moment she stopped telling the truth, that was when she was truly crazy. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Sophia Alexander. Uh, we met a couple of days ago. We were introduced by uh, Courtney Kosak. Yes, who does the Reality Bites podcast. Um, she does. We co-host it together. And uh, she was like, hey, Sophia, you're pretty mentally ill. <laughs> I think you'll be you'll be a great guest. Get on over to the valley and <laughs> let loose. You're not. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, thanks to uh, Courtney for for putting the two of us together. Um, Sophia and I grabbed a cup of coffee a couple of days ago and just um, started going over stuff that we might touch on <laughs> the podcast. And I was like, oh, write that down. <laughs> Write that down. So we got a lot of stuff to to um, get to. Uh, just off the top, you're a stand-up comedian. I am. You, I'm stand-up and I'm a writer. And and what what was the show that you got the uh, award for? It was really successful. Oh um, yeah. So I wrote on Amazon's Danger and Eggs, uh, which is like uh, their first original animated series, and it got a Critics Choice Award and an Emmy and. It was Pretty proud to be a part of it. And a GLAAD award, too. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. Kids shows can be such a great way to get to human beings before, uh, you know. They're all baked. Yeah, before they're all baked by misinformation and stereotypes and fear-mongering and all that other stuff. Yeah. And it's nice to have worked for, uh, like, the creator and my boss on the show um, is trans. And most of the crew and the writers and the cast and stuff were all part of the um, LGBT community. Like, I'm bi and the writer's assistant was gay. And uh, it's just, it was really cool to get to put together things that, like, you wouldn't if you weren't looking for them you wouldn't notice them but if you were looking for some sort of stuff as a kid then it would speak to you in a way that you know other things wouldn't so it's just not just even about like gay things just about uh you know sometimes maybe you don't have a parent that can take care of you in the way that you would like or you know things like that chosen family concepts that are kind of universal yeah and i think if anybody 
has ever had a lived experience feeling like you're on the outside looking in, it shapes the way you look at yourself, the world. And even if you may not share that issue with somebody else, you share that feeling of it's being so true. separate, alone, different, um, not safe, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever it may be. Um, uh, my ex wrote on uh, a kid's show, Word Girl, which had a, just a great cast, Donna Glass and Maria Bamford. Oh, and yeah, a bunch wow. Of, bunch, of other, bunch of other great people. And she just really enjoyed um, the freedom to um, write for kids, but also kind of write for adults. Yeah, you know? and like the kind of things that you wish you had seen when you were a kid. Yes, yes. And that, I feel like people always say that, when you have a kid, you get to be a kid again, too. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like having that without the 18 years of having a child. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's a I mean, because you know they die at 18 right away. Well, if, so you, if you, you do it right, you burn them out. <laughs> you put them through their paces. And that way they don't have to deal with old age. Um, so you're originally from Russia. You moved here when you were eight? Uh, 11. But 11. yeah, I moved here when I was 11 from Odessa, Ukraine. I just always say Russia because the Americans don't know the difference and it's fine. Yes. <laughs> it's close enough. Also, I speak Russian like as my first language. So that just makes it easier because when I say I'm from the Ukraine and then I say I speak Russian first, they're like, but I don't know. It's just a lot of facts. <laughs> uh, so I don't want to go down a whole rabbit hole uh, about the Ukraine, but I was just wondering um, what – What's it like over there now with... Uh, Things are not great. <laughs> Putin kind of uh, getting his his claws in yeah, half are of not great. the Ukraine. Things are not great for sure. And uh, my mom's best friend um, still lives there. And she was saying that when they Skype, like, she won't say negative stuff about yeah. what's going on the government there because like that old fear of how things used to be yeah. is still there. And it's so nuts because that's like why one of the reasons we left. So to see it now happen all those years since it's been so many regime changes, but really nothing changes. And I, I that to me is like kind of one of the most brutal things about the former USSR is that I guess Russia's never really been able to rule itself successfully, and it's just the case still, even when we've been broken up into. I mean, partly for countries that were part of the USSR, that's partly the reason they can't govern themselves now, is that they were forcefully part of the USSR. But also, I think there is always a power vacuum because... uh it's always somebody that takes too much power and then they get deposed and then there's a power vacuum and then the next person is worse. And then if they're good, they get killed. It's almost like they were, uh, you know, heroin addicts for so long. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, finally no more heroin. And they're like, Oh, we need something. We need to order. We need control. And so somebody that is the strong, it's Law just, and order person will come in and clean up the corruption. It's just a cycle, I would say, of going between heroin and methadone forever. <laughs> That's yeah. what it's like to live there. What are, and, and did you live on the Crimean Peninsula? Uh, yeah, well, I live basically, yeah, on the, on, uh, the, in a port city on the Black Sea. We're basically right across the sea from Istanbul and Turkey. And, um, 
I grew up speaking Russian because it's, but it's also more of an international place than other places. You would see more people from other places than you would necessarily um, deeper inland in and, Russia and stuff. And I mean, like the history of that's at the center square of historic shipping. Everything had to go through, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, what was then Con- Constantinople. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really cool to just uh also I feel like I I've not been back to Odessa since I've left, which I would very much like to do, but I didn't expect that the first city I would feel close to home at was Paris because there were like cobblestone stri- cobblestone streets and people looked kind of like people where I was from a little bit more and I don't know, it was with way better fashion in Paris, <laughs> but um, but it was kind of neat, and a lot of the history, the sense of history was the same, and I it made me really miss home. What are some memories that you have of uh, living living there? there that that kind of highlight? Uh, I'll give you the specific hits. to being uh, under Soviet Union. So this is like such a funny. I talk about this sometimes when I uh, when I do storytelling uh, and when I do stand up, but it's kind of more of an aside. But there's this whole story behind it that basically um, I remember when I broke my uh, hand and I had a whole cast on it when I was a kid that like went up almost to my shoulder. And I remember my mom being like, oh, you can use this to get ahead of of the line to get chickens. Wow. Cuz like the line to get chickens was like wrapping around the corner and it's like you get the ch- like one chicken per family or whatever it is. So she was like, "Oh, like rather than waiting, go use your broken hand." And I was like, "This is like just a quick shortcut for <laughs> what it's like to be where I'm from. <laughs> you just use what you got, you know? My mom and it worked. Like my mom's a fucking genius." <laughs> And so you wore the cast. The yeah, I just, I was like, uh, I was like, what do you mean? I was so embarrassed. I was like, what do I say? She's like, say I have a broken hand. Give me my chicken. And then I was like, hi, I have a broken hand. Could I have my chicken? And nobody it's, gave you a problem. No, they were like, give this girl her chicken. Mm-hmm. It was pretty funny. I mean, it's again, so dark, but also funny. How, um, how often were you hungry? Um, I would say that my mom worked really hard to make sure that I wasn't and we were lucky in a certain way that so my grandpa sailed and that was kind of the best job you could have because you got to leave the country um, and it was one of the best paid jobs and Jews didn't really get to have it but my grandpa was kind of an anomaly and was kind of a just a he's one of those people you know like a born hustler you know people who like would get you could drop them off at any time on, on any part of the planet put them in any time and they would make it work. Yes. My grandpa's like that. He just, I have no doubt he would just have hustled his way out of anything. So that's just how he was. He hustled his way out of the Ukraine. Basically when they didn't, they didn't let Jews sail. He like basically had a friend that he fought with in world war two who ended up having a high post in the KGB. He was like, Oh, I'll make sure you get out. And he helped him get out. But my grandpa was also somebody that when the Communist Party called him in, he like could talk his way out of it. And he was a communist. He was part of the party as a Jew. I mean, his last 
our last name's Goldstein. Like that is fucking Jewish. You know, <laughs> they were not under any illusions. Yeah. And my grandpa just was that kind of hustler. And so he, because of that, uh, we weren't as poor as we would have been otherwise because he got to leave. My grandma was a doctor, which ironically is a very, is not a rich profession there because you work for, you know, it's a uh, universal health care. Right. So doctors aren't rich. They don't make money in private practice. We're, we're working our way towards that. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So my grandma wasn't bringing in the big bucks, but had, you know, the more like important position, but he was a hel- head electrician on a ship and he sailed around the world. He went to like, you know, 45 countries or something crazy like that. We like have made a little map where he put little lights into all the cities that he went to because as an electrician, that's his thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, basically, he provided for the family and he got to live in a nicer apartment than you would otherwise because they gave that, as, you know, to the... And you all lived together, your parents and grandparents? Yes. Um, How I'm, many of you in one apartment? So it was my mom, me, my grandma my grandpa um in a i guess two bedroom and then uh i mean my aunt lived there before when they were little but then my grandpa got a a one room place for me and my mom that we moved into but here's the thing that people don't know it's like it was communalki which means communal apartments Mm -hmm. So the government assigns where you live. You don't decide where you get to live. You're not like looking and you're like, oh, I would love to live here. (laughs) It's like tough shit. You know, it's not how it works. So you have to kind of trade to get an apartment. So either like, so, so for example, you know, say me and you were getting married. So you would be living in a- I'm not ready. (laughs) Sorry, Paul. (laughs) It's going down. <laughs> so say me and you wanted to get married. You're living in a one-room place in one part of the city. I'm living in a one-room place in another part of the city. Well, you can't just like get a two-bedroom apartment and both of us move in or whatever. It doesn't work Same. like that. So we would have to put in an ad in the paper and we would say, one room in this part of the city and one room in this part of the city looking to trade for one two-room oh. apartment in this part of the city. And then you would wait to see who answers your ad, and then you would check out what their two room places. And if you like the trade, you you guys would trade. And if no one answered with the tough shit, you guys are living apart <laughs> for a while. So my mom and I moved in with a man in his sixties who we did not know. Um, that was the thing my grandpa had set up for us, and that was like a lucky thing to get. So we moved into a one bedroom where we shared the bathroom and the kitchen. Um, but had like separate doors to each of our rooms with like this man in his sixties who was a violently serious alcoholic, not violent. Like he beat me (laughs) just like incredibly serious. Like I would walk home from school when I was six and he would be passed out in front of the door to our communal apartment in his piss and vomit. And I would have to step over him to like open the door and get in. Wow. And you can't move. This is it. Have fun. (laughs) Wow. So, yeah. So, universal healthcare, pretty cool. Education, pretty great. Wow. Communal apartments, eh. (laughs) Chickens, 
not as plentiful as I would have liked. <laughs> yeah. And I, I hate that people, people often, you know, you know, when they hear, hear the word socialism, you know, it's kind of tainted by the ills of the, of the Soviet Union because they use the word socialist in their thing. But, um, you know, when I think of the word socialism, I think of, uh, you know, modern socialism like Denmark, where you take care of each other. And yeah, taxes are higher, but there also isn't, there's safety net for people yeah. who, are, who are struggling. Um, totally. And, yeah. And like I said, there, there were good parts about it too. It's not, um, there's something to be said for capitalism not being as, I mean, there's, uh, I'm not being very articulate. I guess what I'm trying to say is um, it is amazing when I was a kid to be sick and to my mom to make a call and a doctor to come over to our house and to treat me and mm-hmm. give me great treatment. And you don't have to be rich to do that. Um, it's just like what people here had in the 50s. But this was in the 80s and the 90s, yeah. you know, and that was pretty cool. It was also great to go to a great school for free, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not and not have to do anything other than just, you know, test into it or, you know, qualify in a way that's not prohibitional by money. Mm. So, you know, there are wonderful parts about it. Yeah. But the other parts are really, really dark, too. Yeah. So it's like they both both capitalism and straight up communism. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way they could combine the both? Well, I think that's like in, in my mind. The ideals of socialism, I think, like in a country like Denmark. Um, but there are also trade-offs too, right? Because I believe those are also pretty xenophobic places where it's really hard for brown people and for immigrants too. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, I mean, obviously negatives to each thing. I do think that um, my mom and I also were talking about how people, it seemed to us life was simpler in a nice way. Under communism, too, that was also, it's weird to yearn for that and also know that all these other parts of it were terrible. But people really, you felt like people hung out in public parks and there was like a big art scene and uh, everything wasn't, just not such a disposable, I guess, culture the way that capitalism tends to be. uh, And a slower pace, I would imagine. Yeah. And also just the nuclear family I think stayed intact for longer mm-hmm. than it did in the United States. You know, just the multi-generational connections. Um, I would say that was pretty cool. And, you know, I think the public education was better. Like the way that we had music classes in my school, you know, and the way that like what you're taught there is how to identify the most famous classical music pieces by you know, Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev and not just Russian composers, although have a, have a heavy, heavy uh, emphasis, but things like that where, you know, the public education had more of an intellectual and cultural uh, value and had also more respect for other cultures too in a way that was more, like here I would say people know less about Russia and Ukraine and any of those countries than we did about America. But 
Yeah, I th- I think you that's know. probably true for every country versus America. <laughs> yeah. I think we were probably the most centric, maybe outside of North Korea or other closed systems like that. That yeah. that would be that would be my guess, but ours is kind of more by uh I suppose by choice, but also uh the way we teach kids, we don't really give them the the truth uh about the history of how this country came together. And I mean, neither did Russia. <laughs> yes, yes. For sure. Like I said, it's a lot of negatives. Yeah. A lot. Um, so, fast forward, you're here at 11, and, and you guys left. Um, did you sneak out, or were you allowed to leave? Uh, we came here as refugees. Okay. Like, so basically, you had to have... Somebody who was a direct relative send a visa for you mm-hmm. and to get approved to come. So my grandfather's sister had moved here um, in the 80s and she basically sent for him. And then because we were all directly related to him, then we could come. So my mom and I came first. And then two years later, my grandma, my grandpa, my mom's sister and her son came. And that's like our immediate family. Pretty and much. Do, you, do you think it was easier because you were Jewish and it- they're not crazy about Jews in uh, Russia? I mean, that was the reason that we were allowed to come. Yeah, as Jewish refugees, for sure. Um, it was 94. So um, I think we were getting out before it was getting... I don't know. By the time we left, we were kind of some of the last Jewish people to leave. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the next couple of years, the last Jews kind of left. There's not that many. And what were the the reasons for um, things ratcheting up just because the economy was so in flux and people needed scapegoats or what? Well, I mean, I think my mom, my mom was the second best student in her uh, school and she couldn't go to medical school because our last name is Goldstein and they just wouldn't let her in. So she then became a computer engineer, which is super different. And, uh, my grandma's whole family was shot to death by the Nazis, um, because they were betrayed by their neighbors. Wow. So it's a lot of trauma that was sustained by my family and I think they didn't want to do it anymore. Wow. Yeah. So, and my grandma and, and my and grandpa did, both fought in World War II. Like my grandma was a uh, a doctor and she basically worked at a POW hospital like taking care of Nazis after they had shot her family to death, which is pretty nuts. And then my grandpa volunteered to fight when he was 17 after his dad had died in the war. So, um, he was like a gunner and like had sustained a couple of, uh, yeah, he got wounded a couple of times and he has a bunch of medals for being like super, like for bravery and a bunch of other stuff. And him and my grandma had a weird, like a range sort of a marriage because my Grandpa wanted to leave the country to sail. That was his dream after the war. And they didn't let sailors really leave unless they were married because they thought it kept them more stable. So, and my grandma wanted to just settle down because she didn't have anybody anymore. Everybody was dead. So she 
asked to be set up and my grandpa's cousin, I think, set the two of them up and they got married and then they fell in love after they had been married. Mm. My grandpa, when I asked him if he fell in love, he was like, you get used to each other after a long time. I was like, classic romance. Take that as love. Well, because he, I mean, he, when he was at sea, uh, he, he was at sea for years and years, like off and on. And he definitely fucked ladies in other ports that he told me later. He didn't tell any, his daughters any of this, but to me, he felt like he could always tell the truth. So I was, it was like a dubious honor where I'm like, thank you. you? Yeah. It's like, you're shitty about that. What kind of language did he use to express that? I said, so, because he told me he visited geishas in Japan. Uh And I was like, so let me ask you. I was like, did you sleep with other women when you were at sea? And he was like, let's just not talk about that. And I was like, did you sleep with other women? He's like, you know what I did. <laughs> you know, that nice. kind of thing where I'm like, oh, you did. Okay, great. Yeah. So that's what happened. Um, but yeah, so, uh, they had a weird, interesting love story that's kind of not very orthodox. And where was your dad in all this? I never met my dad. So my mom and him, uh, had, were both computer programmers and they had dated and broken up and then, I guess they had a one night stand at a computer conference, uh, like after they had broken up. And that was me. And my mom didn't even tell my dad she was pregnant. I Mm. think he like found out seven months in or something. She is a weirdo. And (laughs) And she concealed the pregnancy from everybody. She just wore moo's for seven months. Until people were like, what is going on with you? Yeah. (laughs) Have have you ever had any like strong feelings come up around um just dad stuff dad stuff and him not being there and the way your mom handled it and i'm not assigning judgment to the way she handled it i i just oh no i'm trying to picture myself as you in that circumstance and it would have been way easier to have a dad (laughs) for sure but not as funny so (laughs) I have a lot of good dad material, so got to be grateful. Um, no, um, yeah, I guess I have an essay that I've written about it that um, is on my website and also it got published on the LA Review of Books, but I wrote it after uh, my aunt found a Facebook page for my dad on Russian Facebook. Russian Facebook's called Adnaklasniki, which means like people who are of the same year in school. Oh, okay. So, um, being surveyed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> being watched. Yeah. So she found him and then like gave me her login to log in and look at his profile. And it was just nuts. It was like a photo of him and like a fleece pullover, which I was like, gross. <laughs> and then, um, it was a picture of him with his new wife. And his two sons. And I say new wife, but he never married my mom. So it's like, that's his wife, not his new wife. But to me, she's his new wife. And um, his new family, I guess his real family, his real family. And they both, I wrote about this in the essay, they both look like two Joffreys. 
Like they are blonde and oh, blue really? eyed and like so not Jewish looking. <laughs> and I am so Jewish looking as is my mom. So I think my dad was like, mm, second time I'm going to go Aryan. <laughs> You know, he was like, what's the furthest away that I could get away from these two Jew faces? So, um, yeah. So, but the thing is, I'm pretty sure that there's no way they would know about us. You know, I doubt he would even tell his wife. That's like, what do you bring it up? And you're like, hey, so I did abandon a woman and her child in another country. He lives in Germany now. Okay. He lives in Dusseldorf, Germany. Um, and I really hope he's mentally ill and he's listening to this podcast. Holler, dad. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, I really hope that I meet him one day. I'm just very curious. And I am also an only child. So I'm very curious about my half brothers. Yeah. How could you not be? Yeah. I'm so curious about what would be similar, what would be different about us. And there's also a new wrinkle to this, which is that we, I did 23 and me mm-hmm. and I had my grandpa do it and, uh, my results. So I've been telling this joke for a long time in my act where I'm like, um, I'm half Jewish, half abandoned on my father's <laughs> side. And, the test came back and I'm literally half Jewish. So the joke came true. I'm 50% Jewish and I'm 20% Middle Eastern um, from Iran, which is a huge surprise considering my dad's supposedly Polish. And um, when my grandpa's 23 and me came back, he's literally 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. Hmm. There was no drop-down menu. These people <laughs> didn't like to like, travel. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I don't know if the Middle Eastern part is from my father or from my uh, grandmother's family, but I'm excited to my, for my mom to take it to see what it yields. Yeah. So, so let's let's uh, then move to you coming to the, uh, to the States. Um, what are some memories you have of adjusting to uh, life here? And uh, specifically, uh, kind of emotional stuff. You know, we've we've mm-hmm. talked about the events themselves. Um, what I'd like to get into the mix is what things felt like, what self talk, you know, maybe started. Uh, do you remember any self talk from uh, pre moving here? Um, I remember the first time. I think I felt deeply sad, and I feel like. That's probably the first time that I think like depression probably reared its head. And I was a kid and I remember I was like five and this was before we moved even. And I remember looking out the window and it was like fall and the geese were flying. Um, like I guess, I don't know, for the south and the sound that they made combined with like the way that the sky looked. It was like sunset and like something about the way the autumn felt. It made my heart hurt. And I remember looking down from, we lived on the third floor, and I remember looking down from the windowsill and being like, what would it be like to just fall and like not be alive? And I don't think I even realized what that was until so many years later when I was like, that's a fucked up thing for a little kid out of nowhere to think. You know, so sometimes you're, I was, you know, it's easy to say like my environment was hard, you know, moving and becoming an immigrant is really traumatic. And 
being on welfare and being poor and, you know, and the inter- being constantly worried about like n- n- being poor when you, we moved to this country did it. Right. You know, what was it that broke me that made me the way I am? But it turns out that I think if I think about it, that maybe the pieces were already there, you know. The picture that you just painted of that, I felt like I needed to go lay down. <laughs> I know that feeling. It's, it, it, you know, it's about 45 degrees out. The days are getting shorter. Yes. You're kind of hungry. Dinner's not ready yet, but you, it's something that you don't like and you've got homework to do and, and it's just, you can't put your finger, but it just feels like it's a, Deeply melancholy part of you yes. or something. Yeah, it's not like crying sad. It's like I want to wrap myself in blankets and shut out the world sad. It Yes, and it feels like uh, the only way I can describe it is like it feels like something's ending. And you don't know what it yes. is. And it's and it's almost like gives you anxiety. Yes. You're like, what is ending? And, and you know, and later, you, it almost is like that feeling you get when it's Sunday night before school, <laughs> yes. you know, and oh it like God. makes your heart hurt because you're like, oh, tomorrow we start this fucking shit again. And it's like that feeling. But before you even know that feeling, because you're little and you still like school and being with your friends. So you're not sure why you're sad. You're like, what is ending? And maybe in a deeper way, it's also like maybe your childhood, but you don't know that again yet. So you can't put your finger on it. But as a child, I think it's like deeply disorienting to suddenly be so sad. Yes. Yes. And to not know where it's coming from and to not be able to explain it, to not be able to even say what you're feeling yeah you know you're so little how can you even tell your mom like i considered throwing myself off this windowsill without it completely shattering her life you know you even at that age know how to protect your parents you're just like oh that's not something i can say to them i don't know she might have found a way to get more chickens yeah (laughs) she's like you know what take this down on beef day <laughs> that'll get get us an extra steak um i know a lot of people listening uh, after you just described that were like is she in my head right now it's such a visceral visceral feeling that um you know whether it's i don't know something genetic uh tell- yeah. telling us to start collecting uh food for the winter or it's seasonal affective disorder uh I, yeah. I very very much relate um and i feel like later that's the kind of feeling that like led me to cut myself because i just didn't know what to do with it or whatever but i also feel like i learned what cutting was from popular culture and it seemed right like i know that sounds crazy it's like how old were you uh this was like probably in college. Yeah, this was in college. And I was just like, I feel like I need to let this out somehow, but I don't know how. And then I was like, oh, when people talk about what cutting feels like, that feels right to me. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I think it was that feeling from when I was five coming back, that feeling of like, oh my God, this like deep, deep, there's a Russian word for that I've actually have tattooed uh, on me and it's taska. And that's a word that there's no translation for in English, but my Russian listeners might know what it is. The sky is like this feeling of deep melancholy or deep missing, um, deep longing for something that you might not even know what it is. 
Holy shit. And it is so fucking Russian. <laughs> yeah. That, that is, we need a word for that. Tuska, you guys. Need, how do you spell it? T-O-S-K-A. Tuska. Yeah, Tuska. So on my side, I have that tattoo on my, uh, on one of my sides. And on my other side, I have the tattoo, uh, dig because of this Seamus Haney poem, uh, where he talks about watching his father dig in the yard and watching his father's hands, you know, dig through the soil. And he talks about how his father used to dig up limestone. His father digs up potatoes and how that's something that they've done as a family that they dig. And then he looks at his, his, at his hands, which are white and like uncalloused and like holding a pen. And then he goes, well, I guess I'll dig with that. Oh, wow. And I just always thought that was so fucking beautiful. And everybody in my family um, fixes something. So my grandma was a doctor and she fixed people. And my grandpa was an electrician and fixed anything electrical that's broken. You can still do that. And uh, my mom is a software engineer who fixes bugs and programs. And I'm the only person <laughs> that just is a comedian writer. So I feel like that's my way to try to fix. Yeah, that and, makes sense. And I feel like it's also the only thing that can dig you out of Tosca for me. So I feel like those are kind of the two sides. I don't know, of like being a deeply sad person, but then also kind of using that as something that could be a strength and a bridge to other people. I couldn't agree more. Which is, you know, your entire thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry to horn in on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's always nice. Uh, I mean, as you and I said, when we had uh, a coffee, it just felt like a kindred, yes, kindred spirits. Um, you know, which is not surprising given the nature of people that come on the show and what mm -hmm. we talk about that those to me are the most meaningful bridges to another person are the difficult conversations, the revelatory moments of realizing you're not alone. You're not the only one suffering and that, you know, we, we needn't take reality personally. Oh, yes. I feel like also, you know, just recognizing that uh, I'm a bipolar person. So if you're a bipolar, you might also like recognize having this kind of two sides to yourself where the one side is like a deeply destructive kind of force and another is a deeply healing and like buoyant force. So I feel like being bipolar is a balance of those two things because I, you know, I was just joking about this at a rehab. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing a rehab, a stand up at a rehab and um, a ton of the women there were bipolar. I asked them to raise hands and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> it was most of them, honestly. And, uh, I was joking with them about how I, I really like applaud them for getting any kind of help because, you know, or getting off of drugs or whatever, because as a bipolar person, they were talking about how they're on psychiatric meds. And I'm like, it's hard to get on psychiatric meds because being manic is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I've just been hypomanic and it's, I've never been so productive. Uh, also never spent so much money. Um, I've never fucked so many men I should not have fucked. <laughs> is that, is that the it truth? It was still really fun. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't regret the experiences and stuff and mm -hmm. thank God I could like wrap it up. But like, uh, I meant make them wrap it up. That made it sound like I had the dick, uh, which is fine if you do. But, um, yeah, I, yeah, I made a lot of really questionable things, choices like, 
you know, climbing a crane while being like afraid of heights and, you know, taking like 17 credits every semester when it's like, and being, you know, in a play and starting a student group and, you know, being in two other student groups, like anybody from the side could have probably been like, yeah, you're fucking manic, slow it down. But I didn't know. I was like, I feel great. Finally away from home. I'm in my freshman year of college. I feel awesome, you know, but instead I was just like setting myself up for like a pretty serious fall. Oh, I can't imagine with the crash. Yeah. It must be like from, well, actually I do because when I came down, I had a, a, a med that really backfired on me. It was awesome for a month and then like a switch flipping. It was a Billify and it, uh, is that the one with the egg, the commercial with the egg? Uh, I don't know. I fast forward through, (laughs) I have a DVR, so I just fast forward through. I don't watch almost nothing live. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure. Sorry, but that egg really got me whenever it bounced around. I was like, yeah. I will take that medication, whatever well, it is. Yeah, it was, it but was, it was a, not good for was, you. Oh, no. It uh, almost immediately turned into anxiety, insomnia, and suicidal ideation that lasted for about two months. And, um, it, that's where having a history of uh, dealing with mental illness can really benefit is knowing that it's not going to last forever and to be nice to myself during that time to take naps to you know do do whatever not crack the whip and say you're not getting enough done it's like you know what just not killing yourself is an accomplishment accomplishment. some some days uh so let's talk about uh, it's sorry just you just said that and i have a joke about uh (laughs) <laughs> about uh, how I worried so much in my 20s and then I turned 30 and I looked in the mirror and I was like, you know what? You're good looking enough not to kill yourself. <laughs> Which I feel like... You're so full of yourself. So much of, yeah, so much of like, oh, you know what? Let's not be hard on ourselves. Sometimes yes. just feeling like you're enough to live <laughs> is a big ass deal. Yeah. finding Finding something to get up. For a glimmer of hope, um, yeah, because that like that gray blanket just distorts everything. Yes, we were talking about this when we when we had coffee and we laughed about it because it's so true that the things that we say to uh, ourselves we would never say to other people. Oh no, if they would just be so savage and fucked up yeah. that. We would never do it. But it's like you spend your whole life building yourself up and trying really hard to ward yourself against other people's negativity or depression affecting you because you know you're fucking sensitive and you have mental health issues. And then you don't realize you're like, oh, no, the call was coming from inside the house (laughs) this whole time. You're like, I've been tearing myself down. How did I do this? Oh, my God. I laughed so fucking hard when (laughs) when you said that. That that really seems to be the biggest battle is how do we grow while practicing self-acceptance? Yeah. It's demanding stuff from yourself while not demanding so much from yourself that you are too negative and you can't even build on any of the positive things. I think the first thing to get a grapple with um, is to recognize your perfectionism and to try to not engage in it. Um, 
using words like always or never yes. is usually a sign that you're engaging in yes. perfectionism. Absolutely. Everything, yeah, you're, what you're saying just speaks so much to me. I feel like the perfect is the enemy of the good enough. And every time I find, I like find myself spending too long, like writing an email, people might identify with this, especially in entertainment, because you're writing so many emails, selling yourself all the time, um, that, you know, you can so easily just, I can get to a place where I'm like, okay but like what's the proper like email signature in this case because like right. like how much do i know them is it like xo xo just like no that's stupid sophia like you don't know them that much like do you go sincerely no it's like stuffy it's like sincerely like cheers like what are you fucking british you're not british <laughs> don't fucking write cheers it's like what are we gonna do like truly <sighs> she better like take a minute it's like i better take a minute and it's like, oh my God, I do want to have dinner with them. But if I say I want to have dinner with them, are they going to think that like, I'm just saying that because I'm asking them for something? Well, how are they going to know that I'm being sincere that like, I do want to have dinner with them, but also I'm asking them a question. <laughs> oh my God. Or like, oh, well, well, they, how much do they know me? I'm asking to do their show, but like, should I include like a full bio or like a mini bio or like, do I include a headshot in like two clips or like one clip or like that kind of thing can drive you fucking bananas. Bananas. And then you won't be sending half of the things that you could be sending because you'll just say, no, 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 I'll, I'll work it out later. I got half of the way there. So I'll just finish that email later. I'll just finish it later. It's fine. It's fine. You did the work. It's so like tomorrow, tomorrow. There's instead of just being like, Sophia, there's a good enough version of that email. No one's going to disown you from their life right. if you write truly instead of sincerely. Also, you know, sometimes I'll be like, well, you made a, you'll make a grammatical mistake. It's like, again, you may, if you make one error in that email, but you get that email out, it's worth it. It's worth it. Just let that go. Yes. And it's hard for me to let things like that go. I'm always worried that I'll be misunderstood. I'm always worried that people are going to, I uh, think that I am using them or I want something from them or that I'm insincere. Um, I mean, I'll worry so much sometimes. I, it was really hard for me at one point to like go and do stand up because I wouldn't be worried about my set or doing well or anything. I would wor be worried just about the social interaction mm -hmm. aspect. And not that I thought that people would not like me or something. I would just be like, well, uh, you're going to go there and like, going to see this person but you know do, are you going to hug them or are you not like not going to hug them because how long has it been since you've seen them and you know they're going to be like you're weird why are you hugging me we're not that yeah. close do you do they even respect my stand-up or yeah, do yeah, they yeah. just tolerate like, oh, me yeah and also if they saw me do this joke the last time they saw me and it was like six months ago they're like is this bitch writing any new material <laughs> you know or conversely what if you do newer material and it doesn't hit and then they're like this bitch is not funny you know all the stuff that has nothing to do with stand-up itself and my mind would just fixate on all of these superficial things that do not have to do with what I really need to be worried about, which is doing well on stage. That's the only thing I'm there to do. Yeah. So it would get me so stressed out. I sometimes would just cancel. I'd be like, oh, I can't. I like can't. I can't bear to see these people because, you know, they're all friends and they're in a clique or whatever story I would tell myself. You know how we love to tell ourselves these oh, stories. Yeah. I, I would love to know what the percent of people that kind of chronically back out or cancel, you know, we often think of them as just purely being rude. But I would be interested to know what percentage of them actually have crippling social anxiety. Oh, yeah. I would bet a lot more than we ever stop 
to, oh, yeah. to think about. My thing that I, it, it's almost like, you know, reaching for another cookie and you know you, you shouldn't, that you've had enough is using exclamation points in my emails because I just am so afraid that somebody is going to think that I'm being terse Same. with them. I do that and I do smiley faces and then now I try to do that or take out qualifier words that I use to like make things softer. Yes. I think it's also a female thing too because we're uh, just always have been taught to be well-mannered mm-hmm. and polite that we're and manage s- other people's feelings. Yeah, we're so afraid of taking them. I mean, we're always like taking emotional responsibility for things we shouldn't for like, yeah. So it, it leads to overthinking also. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to, to rip the bandaid off, make myself write emails quicker, make myself follow up more because following up, I think is another thing that gives people anxiety where they're like, Oh, I'm bugging the person. I'm, I'm making them annoyed. And one of the, I did like a, a screen craft panel um, in Atlanta um, this year. And one of the biggest pieces of advice that I gave, and I really stress this, especially for, for women and for people of color where we are more afraid to follow up than anybody else, because I hear over and over from bookers, you know, of stand up and as a, as a booker myself, people that mostly hit you up are white, straight men. They have the most confidence in themselves. They're also the ones that hit you up repeatedly most often. Almost no women or people of color ever hit me up multiple multiple times, really, without hearing a response. Because like most of us just assume like, oh, good. They, oh, if they, they hate us. That's fine. Okay. I'll never <laughs> talk to them again. <laughs> you know, instead of just being like, no, uh, it's totally okay to follow up. It's literally only... Um, blown up in my face one time and it happened this year and it was like everything you tell yourself is going to happen that's a negative thing where you're like Sophia that's ridiculous no one's going to be mad at you for following up someone got mad at me for following up this year and I was like oh no (laughs) I was like it is true my worst fear is true but honestly after it happened it made me laugh because the person was so great it was such a crazy response that I truly was like it's not me. It almost yes. validated the other thing where I was like, oh, oh, that's what it's like when someone does that. And it's not about me. Right. And it felt good. Yeah. The the bar of behavior that we will tolerate uh, from somebody else is so out of whack with what we ask of ourselves uh, sometimes. And I would say sometimes vice versa, you know, especially if we're into some kind of, you know, addictive thing or, you know, we're something some kind of trauma's driving the bus and uh you know we're yeah. we're just completely focused on you know whatever whatever it is but also so much of my anxiety has been like managed by medication honestly mm-hmm. i i mean it changed it flipped the switch for me with going out and being afraid to like you know worrying about things like that i literally hadn't canceled a show haven't canceled a show to that in years and that feels really really great and also felt like, oh, I wasn't doing anything wrong. It's just like my brain was misfiring and fucking up, you know? Yeah. So that was, that's also a relief that you can tell yourself, you know, you're not doing anything wrong. If you find your thoughts really racing and the, what you're afraid of happening being completely outpaced with the actual 
magnitude of the activity you're going to do, mm-hmm. that's like a good sign that you're experiencing some crazy anxiety yes. that you might want to get looked at or yes. treated in some way, yeah. whether it's therapy and medication, whether it's... Yeah, or journaling is a good place to, to start. Get it out on paper and look at it. Look at the facts on the ground and, yeah. and let your brain kind of vomit that stuff out and um i I say hit it on as many fronts as you can and see what works yeah what yeah whatever even if sometimes writing it out might make you help you see how like ridiculous what you're saying is oh yeah that's you know that's my task right now my therapist has me writing that out because um i've just been experiencing just depression around you know political stuff and just the state of the world. And um, I didn't realize how much it was affecting me until I started talking about it. Um, and so she's going to have me just write all of this stuff out so I can get it out of my head instead of just letting it ping pong uh, around. So helpful. Yeah. Journaling also, you, you, you sometimes will know you have to do when you don't feel like doing it. And then you start and then it's all just like. Oh, you can't stop it. No, it yeah. feels so good. Yeah. We're going to uh, pause here for a second and give uh, shout-outs to our sponsors. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Casper. Uh, Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. As I like to say, for us, the listeners... And me, that number is probably closer to half your life. Uh, I have a Casper mattress. It's awesome. I've slept on it. Got great night's sleep. It's in uh, the spare bedroom I got. I have friends stay over. They all love it. What more do you need to know? So to get 50 bucks towards select mattresses, visit casper.com slash mental and use the offer code mental at checkout. That's casper.com slash mental and use offer code MENTAL for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And we'll put the links to this and all the stuff that we mentioned uh, on the show notes for this episode. Uh, today's episode is also sponsored by Care-of. Care-of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. I've used it, and it's great. It comes in a, uh, a little box takes up almost no room and they dispense one day at a time little pack it's got all your pills right there you don't have to open up five different bottles every morning and worry about oh am i low on this one or i'm low on that one and the thing that i think is really great about this product is you go online you take like a five minute quiz you say what your goals are you know i want to have more energy or i want to have better cognitive uh, ability and you know i'm kind of spaced out etc cetera, etc cetera. and then they pick vitamins and supplements that they, they think will work for you and they ship it to you so um i like it i think it's i just think it's a great idea it's well executed and uh, and i think it looks good on me uh so 
They also have uh, vegan and vegetarian supplement uh, options. And uh, so you can modify it at any time. What more do you need to know? For 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter MENTAL. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter MENTAL for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. And now let's get back to the interview. Uh, let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about cancer. Yay! That is fun. So you're a cancer survivor. I am. I had breast cancer, uh, I think only about as recently as a, like a year or so ago. Um, it was crazy. I found a lump in my, um, right breast when I was on vacation in Hawaii because I know how to ruin a vacation. <laughs> and then through like a series of, series of tests, um, they were like, yep, it's cancer. And then I had to do chemo and radiation um, and have an egg retrieval. And now I'm on drugs for five years that put me into menopause because my tumor was progesterone and estrogen positive, which means that those are the things that made it grow. So now they are blocking my body from making those hormones, which you naturally make as a woman when you're young. So, uh, not to brag. <laughs> so then now they're, they, yeah, basically I'm in menopause for five years and then they'll let me be a fertile woman again. And then I will get menopause again when I am of age. Two for me. <laughs> again, not to brag. <laughs> so what were some of the emotions that, that came up? Uh, around it. The, what, what are the things that you can share that somebody who hasn't gone through that um, doesn't think about, doesn't experience or feel um, myths or truths? Uh, yeah. So I guess I'll share a couple of things briefly. So one is that um, I was bipolar and on Seroquel before I uh, was diagnosed one cancer, or two. two bipolar two okay. and um before i uh started being on the drugs that put me into menopause they ran the drag and drug interaction and they said oh seroquel and um amoxicillin which is my one of my cancer drugs actually bind to the same receptors and have an interaction. So we're going to need to talk to your psychiatrist before we can put you on this cancer drug um, to see what we can do. So my psychiatrist and my cancer doctor talked, and then it turned out that basically um, neither doctor was willing to not have me take that medication, each of them. So my psychiatrist was like, no, we really need to keep her on the Seroquel because we tried like six other things before that and none of them worked. This is the only one that works for her. So I have to insist we keep her on it. Also, like, let's not add to the whole fucking bummer town of cancer. Yeah. Also, like the bipolar thing. And uh, then my cancer doctor was like, well, I don't feel comfortable taking her off of amoxicillin because without amoxicillin and Lupron, but without those drugs, I have about like 20 to 30% of my cancer returning. And if it came back, it would come back in like the bone or like an organ, which is even more fucked up than in the boob. So 
Um, so I, so they were like, yeah, you're going to have to take both of them at the same time. We don't know what's going to happen because, you know, it's a pretty small population sample that's hashtag blessed enough to have bipolar two and breast cancer at once. So they were like, there's really no studies done. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't suggest to put you on something else that might work because there's really no, no sample that we can speak of to be like, oh, this worked for somebody else. So they're like, uh, one of those may be working less efficiently that you'll realize we can't tell which one it's going to be, obviously. So we'll just see what happens. And uh, I thought everything was fine. And then, you know, because I was already pretty fucking depressed over having cancer because, you know, you have to deal with not only like the treatment, which is brutal on your body and is depressing in itself, but so, like side effects of it, such as, you know, I gained over 30 pounds. That'll make you sad as fuck. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, people fall out of your like life, you know, when you first get cancer, when you have that new cancer sheen, people are, <laughs> you know, buying you lunch, texting you, messaging you. And then, you know, pretty soon people are like, you still have breast cancer. I mean, they don't say that, but I imagine that's what they think when they scroll through your sad ass shit or forget about you. They're just like, Ugh, when is she not going to have cancer? But yeah, you just keep on having cancer, <laughs> you know, like an asshole and uh, people fall out of your life and it makes you really depressed. And then you have to take people out of the favorites uh, in your phone. And, you know, your aunt doesn't talk to you for a year and doesn't visit or whatever, you know, shit like that. And you're like, oh, okay. Really hard not to take that personally, yeah. you know? So you're already pretty fucking depressed. So I didn't really notice when my Seracol stopped working as efficiently because I was pretty down. And yeah. how do you parse out what's... Reality and what's what to yeah. take personally and what's biochemical. Yeah. You're like, I should be pretty sad. I have fucking cancer. <laughs> so yeah, it was hard to tell. But my friends, you know had noticed it because I was saying things like, yeah, it just would be easier if I wasn't alive, you know, anymore. Like I knew I was saying like suicidal stuff, but I guess I just didn't feel like I felt like I was doing what I could. So I was like, I'm letting you know, you know. So then my two best friends like hit up my husband and they were like, hey, you know, has she been saying that kind of stuff to you? And he's like, yeah, I know about it. Uh, And I was like pretty furious with them for doing that, not because – I thought like they betrayed me or something. It was because they didn't try, I thought, harder to be there for me. It went from just like zero to 100 real quick. I see. There weren't a lot of conversations with me where they were like, or they weren't like, hey, let's try to cheer Sophia up or help her in other ways. There wasn't, not that I expected them to like solve my suicidal ideation, but there wasn't much that I thought that was in the middle between gotcha. tell it, talking, talking to my husband and um, not doing anything at all. Yeah. So, um, but then my husband was like, well, what can I do to help? Which was the first time anybody had asked that, which is really what I had needed. Wow. So no one was like, what can I do to make, to help? And so I was like, because he was like, can I... He's like, can I help you deal with this? Like, what can I do? Do you want to talk to your psychiatrist or to your therapist? And I had to get a new psychiatrist because mine was eight, mine is 86. And he was like, yo, I'm like gonna, 
I'm going to leave the situation one way or another. <laughs> you should find someone else. And then my therapist I had, hadn't been feeling comfortable with for a while. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to those people. Fuck those people. And then my husband was like, can I help you find somebody? And I was like, yes. So he literally did the actual legwork that I could not imagine doing at that moment. And I tell people about this a lot when people are like, oh, my friend is depressed. My friend is suicidal. How do I help? Because a lot of people post those suicide hotline numbers and like, bless you, that's a step. But I feel like that's kind of not nearly as helpful as actually getting in the game, you know? And so what he did was he looked up under our insurance, you know, doctors who were within, you know, a couple mile radius because he knew that that would be, it would be much harder to get me to therapy if I had to drive really far because mm-hmm. I already drive a lot for stand up, you know, and he also asked me like what I preferred. And I was like, I would like to have somebody who deals with people who have cancer or who are dealing, uh, you know, uh, with that and people who deal with bipolar and people who are also women because I really wanted someone who like I, breast cancer is like pretty much a specific kind of thing. So I just really, in addition to have wanting a female therapist specifically wanted it because of that. So he basically did the research, came into the room with a little stack, three therapists and three psychiatrists and the address and the phone number and like where they were. So I knew and he came and he's like, this is what I decided. He's like, I like this one because of this, this one because of this, this one because of this, which one just sounds best to you. And then he, I said that one and he handed me the paper. And so, uh, and then he said, do you want me to make the first phone call and leave the messages telling them to call you back? And I said, yeah. So then he made the first phone calls, left them the messages. And then I chose from between those on my own. So that, please, if anybody in your life needs help, but you don't know where to start, that is a great place to start. What did that feel like when he he did that, when he came into the room with those? I mean, I just felt like hopeful for the first time in a while. And also, like I wasn't shouting from the like rooftops that I was like drowning and no one was giving a shit which is kind of what I was, had been feeling. Cancer just made me really lonely and really angry. You know, even when my husband was next to me, like helping me through everything, I felt the loneliest I'd ever had in my whole life. I just felt like I was on a fucking island. And it was so hard to explain to everybody what it was like because I was both very lucky and very unlucky. And holding both of those in my head and in my heart at the same time, was so hard, you know, because I was like, I'm stage one. I get to keep my boobs. I get to live. There were so many silver linings, so many things that even other people who get diagnosed with cancer, you know, aren't lucky enough to have. And I felt like so, so lucky and to have the fact that I got good health insurance before I got sick. I literally married my husband and got his good health insurance right before that. So I just felt all of these things had lined up for me to have the best version of this experience that I could have, but it didn't help me feeling also incredibly unlucky because I'm like, I fucking have cancer. I'm in my early thirties. Fuck this. And also when I like 
found the lump, you know, my gynecologist printed out a little thing that was like based on my age and all these things, what the likelihood was that I um, had breast cancer and the likelihood was like less than 3% or something. And then I'd also gotten the genetic test, the BRCA gene test done two months before, and it was negative. So it was just kind of, a, I was not expecting to get yeah, it, you know? Yeah. And um so yeah, after all that anger and all that loneliness, I feel like I started only to climb out of it with um, getting put on Prozac in addition to my Seroquel, since that's the only way they could solve my particular medication quandary, just to add another thing. And, you know, within a week of Prozac, I stopped feeling suicidal. It was like, like that. And, you know, it doesn't always happen like that because before it took me six medications to get to Seroquel. So occasionally you get lucky. And I felt very blessed that adding the Prozac, literally, I just felt like I would wake up in the morning without a feeling of dread. And I don't know how long it had been that I hadn't feel felt like it was a chore to like, oh, it's another day of working on it. It's like, I'm going to have to fucking work on how to get back from being this cancer bitch. Like, ugh, it's another fucking day. Because I was pretty good at like, I did stand up the whole time I had cancer and I wrote jokes about it and that I was like, oh, I'm dealing with it pretty well. Mm -hmm. But I really wasn't. It was just a diversion sure. until I really crashed at the end there. And it was like, everything hit me. If you, if somebody could have come up to you before your husband said that, just to talk to you about what you were feeling and what you needed. And they asked you, what, what can I do for um, you? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to help, to help for, for the person, person out there that isn't used to asking for help and is maybe surrounded by well-meaning people that don't really know, don't have a script. I would say, I would say rather than just asking, your questions should, should have solutions in them. Rather than giving them more work, which is what it feels like of, in addition to saying to you, I need help to figure out how that you could help them, that is too much. That is more than they're capable of if they're right. depressed. If they're telling you they're depressed, that took so much work for them to do. Yeah. Depression so much work. is like a 15-minute decision. If they've showered in the last week, they like did so much work. Like they don't, they don't, they're not capable. So for people who think that, oh, why didn't you call? Why didn't you call? It's like they're never going to fucking call. You set on one thing that helped me is you set an alarm or reminder in your phone. My friend Lee, who is one of my best friends and was so helpful when I had cancer, he, what he did is he put in his phone a reminder whenever I had chemo and that day he would come by with a pie. Wow. And no one had to tell him. He didn't have to text and be like, when is your next chemo again? Like a million fucking people did. Right. It's like, I'm only going to respond to that text so many times before I'm like, I just can't. Yes. And it's not personal. I'm not yes. angry at you in the moment at all. I don't, I'm not thinking about you. I'm so tired from my actual treatment. Yeah. And from literally, people don't understand how many doctors you see. People think you have a cancer doctor. No, you have a radiation doctor. You have a um, chemo doctor. 
you have a surgeon, you have an egg retrieval doctor, that's your like fertility doctor, you have um, a nurse, <laughs> like you have uh, a nutritionist, you have to see so many fucking people all the time. Do you have Dr. Detroit? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, that might be the oldest reference I've ever made on the on this show. Uh, but um, go ahead. All, yeah, I mean, it's just so much work. You're like, I am exhausted from sitting in the car. Like, I can't. So it's much more helpful if you are asking, if you say, hey, Sophia, I was going to come by and bring you food tomorrow. Is that helpful? Or I rented three movies that I know you like. Blah, blah. I don't know. Hocus pocus. What do you like? I'm going to come over with that. You know, is that cool? Let them say things like, oh, tonight would be great. Or I can't, but tomorrow would be great. Let them be the person who at most only tells you when to show up. Yeah. You know, but you come up with what you could do. And, you know, don't tire of ideas. Wait until the you say something that they're like, yes. You know, I would have killed for people to, you know, the one time my friend Courtney, my best friend Courtney did that. I really appreciated where someone she loaded me up in the car and took me to get my nails done. I would have loved it had more people done that, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Pull you out of yourself in a way where you don't have to do anything. They load you up in the car. They take you to a location. You have nice. a great time. That's super helpful. Um, would it be possible to to lie and tell your friend Lee that I have cancer? <laughs> yes. I'm going to tell him today that my friend Paul just got it. <laughs> and that what's your favorite kind of pie. Uh, any kind of fruit pie. He only loves Mostly berries. berry pie. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to tell him. Strawberry yeah, rhubarb. Strawberry rhubarb. I my, love my strawberry favorite. rhubarb. That's yes. a good-ass pie. But yeah, that's super helpful. Just offer things. Offer that's so, things. That, that is so touching. And offer know? to drive somebody to the doctor. Yes. if That is so hugely helpful. Because making the appointment, getting to the appointment, anything is so hard. So literally be like, hey, can I make that appointment for you and take you to it? Let them say no to you, mm -hmm. you know, let that be the most work that they have to do. Yeah. Um, I think that is good. And one thing that um, I got told by uh, a doctor when I had cancer that I thought about a lot that I think could be applicable to anybody who is going through mental health, anything, but is also applicable to people going through physical problems, too, uh, that are uh that are long illnesses that they're going to recover from. My doctor said this to me. They, she said, you're going through a transformational experience. You're never going to be who you were before you got sick, but hopefully who you'll become after you like even more. And I just kept saying that to myself when I felt fucking shitty and like the worst version of myself and like just ugly and petty and just disappointed and angry at myself and at everybody else and at just life. The only thing that helped, honestly, was saying that to myself. And then it became true. I think that I am becoming the best version of myself. I do like myself more than I did before I got sick. And I do think I'm going to like myself even more once, like, you know, I keep 
changing. Once you know. find out Lee made you diabetic. Yes. Once I gained those 33 pounds that I lo- uh, gained on chemo, then lost again. Once I gained them back, I'll be who I meant to, was meant to be. I like, by the way, how I don't remember the name of anybody else in your life, but, Lee, but the person that made you pie... I know that name. Me neither. <laughs> it's the only significant contribution. Yeah. Um, this may sound kind of cheesy, but I there's a part of my brain that is like, you should share this. I love woodworking. And the wood that people use to make craftsman uh, furniture is a really, really strong uh, wood uh, called white oak. And there is this, when you cut the oak a specific way, it has to be milled in in a way that's called quarter sawn and that's the hallmark of craftsman furniture and, and you'll see like the lines of the grain running up and down and then you'll see these weird kind of aberrations that are kind of beautiful they're they're um they're hard to describe but they're uh um they're almost like little pools of water like mm. kind of reflective and they're called medullary ray flex and the way they are formed is when an oak tree blows in the wind and it gets breaks it repairs itself and the repair what you're seeing the medullary ray flex is the repair to the oak tree which ultimately makes it stronger than it had ever been before but you have to look at the wood in this one particular way. And then you see this beautiful thing that is, there's nothing else kind of like it. And, and it's so strong that, that wood when it's, when it's cut that way. And it just so often reminds me of, um, the human spirit that if, if we can, find a way to look at things and grow and not jump off a bridge um it can be kind of cool when we do come out the the other side um i don't know i just uh, no i think that's so beautiful i yeah i love that i love also your description of what they look like i i don't know if what i'm picturing in my head is the right thing but it's so beautiful that's yeah, man, I feel like uh, if there's one thing that, you know, your podcast does for people is, is that you're, you are that wood, Paul. <laughs> you are that wood because it's, absolutely it's making something great and beautiful out of something shitty that, you know, we were born with or however we got our mental bullshit that, um, not everybody has, but the people that do, um, it's so much more meaningful to them to have kindred spirits. So meaningful. Than it, than it is to anybody else. And anytime that I've found people like that, they've been my saviors where, you know, we find that in music, we find that in writing, we find the people that make us feel less alone. Even when you first read, I don't know, if you, the first time you read about somebody being depressed or describing it in a way that you felt acutely inside your heart, it made you feel like for the first time ever you were understood. Yeah. And, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, substitute for that feeling yeah. than, um, the warmth of understanding and feeling like 
we're all freaks in a similar way, you know, and when you find your little freak tribe. Oh, it's the best. You, yeah. And you feel like you can rise up through the lessons you all learn and you share resources so much more. I mean, yeah. And I feel like it's also hope because not so recently, literally, I was so depressed and so broken that like when I would go to sleep at night, my husband would go to sleep and that is when like my torture would get just amplified. My brain would literally do this. It would go, hey, it's quiet outside. Maybe we want to think about everyone in our lives that's betrayed us. <laughs> Does that sound like fun? Let's start the list. Ready? One, your aunt. Where was that bitch the whole time you had cancer? <laughs> Pretty crazy how you just have the one aunt and she just dropped out of your life like that, huh? Let's think about that for a little longer. Who else is there? What about that friend you had? Who's the only one that lived within 15 minutes from you? That could have actually, I don't know, brought you food or hung out with you while you were sick? Where was that bitch for a whole year? Huh? Let's think about that for another 30. And it would be fucking three in the morning and I would just want to go to sleep. I'd be like, please shut up. But my brain would be like, hey, thought of someone else just now. <laughs> I bet, I bet we thought that person uh, would remember us because we were so nice to them when they were going through something hard in their life. No, though. No, huh? We were wrong. How does it feel to be so sick and so wrong? <laughs> wow. Wow, your judgment about people. That's probably the only thing worse than having cancer, huh? Let's think about that for another cool hour. It's just like, God damn it. I just want to live my life. And oh my, my brain God. would not shut the fuck up. And it was it was so fucking horrible. And I was like also really mad at my husband, even though he was like literally like the person that was the most for me during this. Mm -hmm. I was mad at him for, you know, also being at a loss of how to be with somebody who has cancer. But, yeah. you know, I still was I was like, oh, oh, so he what is he isn't going to touch you the whole time you're sick. And it's like, right. yeah, he's not gonna because your skin hurts a lot and your joints and your everything and right. you have cancer and he's afraid, you know, but I'm like, oh, so I'm not pretty to you anymore. <laughs> it's like, yeah, maybe you're not that pretty. You gained 36 pounds and you have a bald spot at the top of your head that makes you look like Friar Tuck. Maybe he gets a pass for a couple months, <laughs> but I would just, you know, be so like seething inside it. Because I was so angry at the whole thing and, you know, it wasn't healthy and I also was not able to take any joy in actually being alive. Just feeling the sun of my on my face when I drove for the first day that my Prozac kicked in, I was like, oh, I didn't feel the sun on my face this it's, whole time. It, it's amazing when you come out the other end of something that you didn't realize what was missing until you felt it there. No. And then it, it's like this grieving of, of like, holy fuck. How, how I, did I endure that? Yeah. And I couldn't, I just was like, oh, when was the last time I was even like actually like joyfully laughing as opposed to a different kind of laughing? 
I mean, I, I go crazy when I see dogs. I was like, when was the last time I like actually went crazy and laughed so hard at like a big floofy dog like I do? You know, like when I see a Labradoodle, I like fall apart. I'm like, when was the last time you just lost your shit over a Labradoodle? It's been a long time, you know? And also I was crying at things that like weren't even sad, you know? I was like, this is a skin commercial. Like... <laughs> This is for dermatitis. Why are you crying? It was so not even, it wasn't even a depression commercial. You know, it wouldn't be even the stuff that normally would get you sad. It was just things that were unexplicably sad to me. I mean, how often is the thing we're feeling an emotion over about the thing we think we're feeling an emotion over? Probably (laughs) 0.001%. So true. You know, it probably all goes back to the time our bottle fell off our (laughs) crib tray. You know, those geese from the beginning, man. Dude, that, that image is so, I can smell what the air smells like. I, I know that just this sound, like the echo of maybe there's a dog like a half a mile oh away. Oh my God, they're barking. And it's and kind of And their howling faint. also hurts your heart. Yes. And maybe you hear a little crunching of leaves and like, a, you know, maybe a mm-hmm. kid kind of playing or, and in those moments, it's when you hear other people going about their day seemingly untouched by the melancholy that amplifies it oh yeah 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 like i'm sure everybody always gets told they have cancer on a sunny day (laughs) totally it was so sunny when i got it (laughs) and also i feel like it's that feeling um when you and i don't know you know that feeling when you walk uh around outside and it's cold and it's deep evening and you're seeing families through their window. Oh my God, yes. And you're like, just so sad. And I don't know if it's also because like my mom was never home because she was always working because she's a single mom and I was an only child. So I feel like I always thought this is what it must be like to have a family that's like around. So to me, I guess it always made me sad, even if like I would go home and my mom would be having a great time with me or something. It wouldn't matter. In right. my mind, it was still still watching them through the window made me feel. Yes. Yeah, it's like the the family version of a candy store. Yeah, you just got your nose pressed. Yeah, to yeah, it. yeah. And, and I think that's why when we were talking about when we find our people, it's like we suddenly realize we've been in the candy store the whole time. We just didn't know it. The first time I walked into a support group and heard my story coming out of other people's mouths, I felt like my entire life I've been a three-legged dog, and all of a sudden, I walked into a room of three-legged dogs, and I couldn't believe. Not only that there was one other three-legged dog, but a fucking room full of them, and they're laughing and crying, and they get each other, and they want to know me and help me. Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, I can't imagine the first time how powerful that felt. Oh my god. It it I went from suicidal to slowly being excited about life. And it's not like it's a fix and nothing ever backslides, but it's always there and that's why I don't miss my meetings cuz it's 
it's, you know, the gym for my soul and I need it to stay alive. Oh, yeah. It's not that, yeah, with medication, like I don't go to therapy now or I don't have to journal or work really hard. I still do, but it's so much easier. And it's also like, um, the, the thing that you get from, uh, from therapy is also recognizing what tools you have what tools you still need. So, but you require, you need way less effort to use those tools after, to me, for me, after I got medicated, you know? And with Prozac, it was just like, oh my God, is this what you motherfuckers who are normal have been feeling like this whole time? I was like legitimately mad. Oh yeah, it's a shake like, your fist at the sky moment. Yeah. But but you're also kind of happy. You're at the happy because yeah. you were experiencing it at all. Yes. But I was also like, do you know what I would be now? Right. Had I found what this feeling was like earlier? I would be Steve fucking Jobs or something, you know? That's how I felt. I was like, all you motherfuckers have been feeling like this and you're still fucking Lyft drivers? Like, (laughs) do you know what I could have, you know, I'm being facetious, but yeah, it's, yeah, it felt like I had so much, for me, what changed was a well of patience also. Like, I don't know if there's, other people who are listening to this who also had huge temper problems that went along with like all their other stuff. My mom, when I was growing up, yelled at me a lot and it was kind of either become really non-confrontational or do the opposite and yell back. So mm-hmm. I learned to have a temper because that was the only way to kind of save myself was like to yell back immediately. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't serve me very well as a tool that I, you know, had to use to kind of defend myself from my mom for so many years. So it then made me that in my relationship with my husband, who is not at all a yeller and is very patient, it made me be very short and patient. And, you know, I would save up my temper all day because, you know, you can't yell at people in your workplace or whatever, or with your friends, if you want to keep them. So I would work so hard on being balanced during the day. Then when I would come home, like he would get the worst of my temper. That's what marriage is for. (laughs) And I hated that about myself. I would, I would be doing it and I would be inside my, my head trapped in it kind of and hating it and being like, just shut up. But I couldn't. It's like lava. Yeah. It would just be like I would be exploding with this like anger and fury. And I wouldn't know how to like bottle it back up or put it back. I would just be so angry. And the only way for me to stop being angry would be pick up a book and read for a little bit Mm because it just throws you immediately into another world. And that would disarm my feelings, which was also kind of a hack and not a real way to deal with it, you know? And I was like, this is so fucked up that like I am so angry and I just didn't even realize I was like I'm always working on not being angry and it's so fucking hard like what do I have to do and then getting on Prozac my well of patience increased by like a hundred percent so I overreact so much less frequently now I raise my voice so much more frequently before my feeling when my husband wouldn't understand me would be 
this toddler level of frustration where yeah. I would scream out as like, ah, I would say, you don't understand so much. I would scream that. I would be like, you don't fucking get me. You don't fucking get me. You don't fucking understand. It would make me so furious. And then now I have an infinitely deeper well of patience where now when I get that frustrated, I take a deep breath and I go, I feel like you don't understand what I'm saying. And like, actually, what I'm saying is this. And, you know, it's, you know, it hurts my feelings. I feel like you're not acknowledging this, which is like the kind of therapist talk I would have fucking been so happy to be able to crank out, you know, throughout my whole life. And I could never have it together enough, even when I was on just Seroquel. There really is something about getting resilience. That's the, to me, is the, uh, the word that sums up recovery um, oh, yeah. or at least, you know, making headway. And a lot of people don't understand how big a, a part uh, uh, depression, uh, uh, anger is a component in depression, whether it's turned inward with self-hatred or outward at lashing out at people or both. Um I'm I'm uh, multi-talented, so I can do I can do <laughs> Quit both. Bragging, but, Paul. God. Um, yeah, you can hate yourself and other people. <laughs> I'm ambidextrous. Let's uh, wrap up with talking about the uh, other thing we wanted to talk about, which was um, when Sophie and I were were having coffee, we started talking about the Me Too movement, and uh, share with me what you began oh yeah um so what i said was uh twofold one is that i feel like men right now feel like they are the only ones on trial so to speak and having to account for their past behavior and look back kind of and be like wait what did i do anything that was fun wow, I have to reevaluate that. Oh, I didn't realize that was fucked up. I feel like they think that they're on their own when in fact, hey, guess what? We were all fed the same garbage by the same garbage culture. So like the same way that misogyny has affected men, uh, sexism has affected men. It's also, you know, affected women. It's made us into sexists and misogynists, too. And I don't think that we're immune from the problem at all. The same way that you're reckoning with being shitty men, we're reckoning with having been shitty women. There's not one woman probably listening to this that can't look back at her past behavior and recognize some things that she now cringes at. And what I was telling you is like, I was the classic, I'm not like other girl girls. That was like... I'm not like other girls. Other girls are so much drama. I'm not like them. I'm like real cool. Most of my close friends are actually guys. Actually, I don't even like living with women because I'm like, ugh, so annoying. You know who I love living with is dudes. Those have been my most rewarding friendships and my most rewarding roommate uh, arrangements. Basically, all other women but me are stupid. I am the only one that's cool as hell. Other women are feminine and dumb, you know? That's like kind of a lot of the cool girls kind of had that in the 90s, you know? We were like the Daria girls. We were sarcastic. We were whatever. And you learn to be an asshole and that the only thing that really your guy friends appreciate is when like, oh, look at her. She's saying like sarcastic, mean comments. Mm. And like frequently the targets of those comments would be other girls. Girls that we set up 
ourselves apart from, you know? And I remember when I was in college, I thought that being feminine and being feminist were not compatible. So I thought cooking was dumb as fuck. I thought gardening was dumb as fuck. I thought babies were dumb as fuck. If I saw anyone enjoying any of those, I was like, that is sad. What an old fashioned kind of girl and like slash woman. Like I am sad for her. Doesn't she know that instead of spending an hour working on this meal, she could just be, I don't know, getting high with her guy friends and like, doing something else that I thought was more valuable at the time. But, you know, without at all being like, hey, you know, it's pretty amazing feeding people. It's really artistic and cool to make a meal. Um, there's nothing gross about, I mean, I was punk rock. I just wore, you know, literally like plaid bondage pants or like fishnets and had a mohawk or I was just like, yeah, that's, you know, the only acceptable kind of thing is to not be feminine. That's the way that I can reclaim right. being, you know, a woman. And that's the only way I can be a feminist without recognizing that I was doing the exact same thing that all these other men were doing, which was just othering these other women and making their interests seem ridiculous because they were traditionally to me feminine, you know, thinking that child rearing somehow is inferior or that wanting to do that was as opposed to thinking that everybody as a woman gets to make that choice and that that doesn't exclude you from doing other things, you know, all these basic things that we take for granted now as feminists, some women listening to this probably are in their 20s. And that's never occurred to them that those things are incompatible. They're growing up in a culture where people are like, oh, yeah, you know, wearing makeup can be really empowering. You know, that wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily the world. And so, yeah, I feel like it took a lot of reckoning and being like, yeah, I was a shitty kind of woman too. I did do a lot of things that I don't, I'm not proud of now. Um, I did talk shit about other women. Um, and I think that this hurts everybody. And then the other thing that we talked about is, that the problem, I think, with men like Louis C.K. and Aziz Ansari and these guys, um, and I'm not saying that them and Bill Cosby are the same level of person. You know, what Louis and Bill did are not the same and what Louis and Bill and Aziz did are not the same. Um, but I think the one thing that is similar is that all those men did not use their platform to show other men how you can be better after fucking up. And that to me is my biggest gripe with them. Um, everything. Which is such, a, such an important thing to talk about because if we don't grow as a society, if we just rejoice in someone's downfall and banish them, um, you know, forever, you know, not that Bill Cosby should get out of prison and have a show or, you know, whatever. But there, what, what can we take from this terrible thing that can help society grow and, and help victims recover? Yeah. I mean, the first people that they should, should be thinking about are the victims. And the second people they should be thinking about it about are all the men that look up to them. 
mm-hmm. and um, all the women. Because here's to me what a great use of your platform is after something like that happens. Um, say you're Louie and you are putting out a statement about this thing that you know is true and that you admit is true. Don't then look to come back as the first thing you're asking. That's pretty clear to me that if you're appearing at comedy clubs and doing drop-in sets, that the first thing you were ever concerned about really was your own career. And what I would have loved to see in that statement is, hey, I fucked up. Um, I used my power dynamic with these women to force them into situations where they either didn't feel comfortable or liter- physically or career-wise to say no to me. And I forced them to feel like they couldn't be safe in their workplace. Because guess what? As a stand-up comic, that's all your workplace. And if a headliner invites you to hang out in their room, you don't necessarily think they're trying to fuck you, especially if you're with your other friend. Mm -hmm. Hotel rooms are where we hang after shows or at the bar or whatever. That's Mm -hmm. what we do. Um, So what he should have said (laughs) to me is, hey, guess what? I fucked up. Here's what I've done about it. I called Dave Becky, my manager, um, with a list of women that I could remember having fucked up this way too. I also am putting out a, a public call because Louie didn't remember all the women he did that to. He apologized to one about pushing her into a bathroom, which she said he never did. So that was clearly another woman he did that to, which is another kind of nightmare. So I would have said, here's all the women I came up with. There, if there's any other women that I didn't, please contact me at this, uh, email. Um, I had my manager reach out to them, ask them what it is that I could do to make their career and life better. If they're still in comedy, what meetings could I set up with them? How about setting up generals at every network, Louie, that you have connections with? How about, getting them a development deal. How about for the show that you were going to have that is now canceled at some stand-up location, you call your friend Sarah Silverman and you say, hey, would you want to take over this tour date? And here's a list of these women in comedy that you could hit up to open for you. That would mean a huge amount to me. Find those women work. Don't think that just saying you're sorry means anything to them. That is the smallest part of what you could do, considering you didn't apologize after it happened. You apologized after it became public that you were caught. And basically, use your leverage, use your platform to atone in an actual way where you give those women a chance to work in the career that you've basically banished them from. And the women that don't do comedy anymore, ask what you can do. Put one of their kids through school. I don't know. Help them get an apartment. Whatever they fucking need. You have millions of dollars. You literally derailed them from making a living from having a career, from expressing themselves creatively. What can you do to get any of those parts of their lives back? Why don't you talk to your people about that? Aziz, 
you literally wrote a book called Modern Romance. It's as if I was making a joke. You wrote the book on modern romance. It's not a joke. You actually wrote that book. And instead of saying, you know what? After reading that woman's account, I see how I didn't see any of the clues, any of the signals that she was sending me. I didn't listen to any of the things that she said that signaled her discomfort. I proceeded with a sexual encounter that she didn't want to have, despite the fact that she herself in that piece says she sent me clues, despite the fact that her vagina was dry. <laughs> the multiple times I tried to penetrate her. Uh I didn't take any of those clues. I didn't recognize what she was saying. I am now deeply sorry having read that. And here's what I've learned from it. Here's how a man who is going on a date with a woman who is in my place could maybe act next time to prevent something like this from happening. Here's cues I should have taken that I didn't. Here's ways in which a sexual encounter like this could have gone next time. That is a kind of thing where your platform isn't being used in vain. And then maybe you can also use all the young men that are looking up to you and don't know what you did wrong, just like you didn't know what you did wrong. Maybe they can take that journey with you and figure out what it was that went wrong and learn from that so that the next time they're in a situation with a girl and they're not sure if she's enjoying herself, rather than proceeding, mm -hmm. they might ask an extra time. And you sold out Madison Square Garden. You're telling me you don't have influence? You're telling me people aren't paying attention to you enough for you to use that platform to make things better. That's what I resent. Mm -hmm. I don't resent you trying to at some point come back to comedy, but I just don't think you care about your victims. I also didn't mention notice during any of this giving money to organizations that could help. These, this is just about <laughs> the platform. What about making it public in your statement? Hey, I established a fund for young women that have suffered from sexual abuse or who have been sexually harassed in the workplace. I gave money to Rain. I mean, there's so many things you could do to draw attention. You could literally, for every day that Louis C.K. posts something, it could be a post about this. He could do 30 days of sexual assault knowledge gaining. He could do, you know, anything that could possibly teach, that could possibly shine a light on the different ways that men and women in this country like are feeling right now. Any of the thing that bridges his platform with what he did would be admirable, but and, he didn't and, do any of that. And would set a great example. And I am <clears throat> somebody who you know, you, you talked about the, the stuff that, uh, Aziz, uh, talked about and the woman talked about. And that is a part of my history years ago. And I've talked many times about that on this podcast and it still eats at me to this day. And I've talked to, um, apologized to, uh, women that, that, that happened with. And, um, I try to, be honest when the topic comes up in conversation to not 
portray myself as this guy who has always been, you know, had it all together and wasn't ever uh, a pig because I was, I was. And um, it's, it's important for guys that want to be better guys and women that want to be better women to have as many examples of somebody sucking up their pride, being willing to look bad and, and doing the right thing. And I don't feel like I have done enough, but I do feel like I am trying and I'm being honest about where I am and let the chips fall where they may. Um, it, it's, uh, I just feel like I have to, you know, when I talked about Trump on, uh, the podcast the day after he got elected, no, I'm sorry. It was, it was after, um, yes, it was, it was after he got elected and I just couldn't believe that after the pussy grabbing tape that people would have elected him. And I felt it necessary to say, Hey, I'm a guy with a history of objectifying women and I would like to think I'm not that guy anymore, but let's, let's paint an accurate picture of who we are as we enter into a discussion. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about our discussion in the coffee place was you enlightened me about the fact that this problem has m- many more dimensions to it than we think that it does, both inside ourselves and outside uh, of ourselves. And I th- would like to think it begins with us self-reflecting, making apologies and saying, how can I be better? Yeah, we have to stop thinking that right now uh, with how popular virtue signaling is and everything in our culture, that the important thing is to let everybody know how virtuous you are and how you're right and better than the people that have made a mistake and how, you know, I'm someone that is a comedian. I make fun of people for, for a living. Uh, you know, I, I try to be as quick about a quip about the current government and shit like that and as anybody else. But I, I but in all seriousness about all of us fucking up, we should be more honest when we fuck up. I think the problem isn't the fuck up. I think it's not being able to say we fucked up. Here's what we learned. Here's how we can do better. You know, in Judaism, and I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, this is after the synagogue uh, shooting. So, you know, in Judaism, there's uh, tshuva, which is the uh, process of uh, making um, amends. And, you know, it's not enough to just say, sorry, or not do it again. It's to make, it's, it's a work of, uh, tikkun alam, which is repairing the world. Like so you really, actions take yeah, actions. you really, you really want to, um, you really want to not just erase the thing 
or whatever, which is I feel like what we are doing every time we're like, oh, I'm going to delete this tweet or I'm going to, you know, or I'm going to double down or whatever versus just being like, yes, the process is I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again. And how can I fix what I've broken? You know, so I feel like that's just a lesson for all of us. And I know for sure in my career, people are going to call me out. I mean, if I'm successful enough, I hope that that happens, <laughs> you know, but I feel like I hope at that point I don't have the reflex that we all have, which is to be like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. And to, you know, defend ourselves to first be like, wait, I have to survive. I have to. Wh- yeah, what, yeah, yeah. To, yeah, to put ourselves uh, first, which I think is a natural instinct, but um it, it doesn't make it okay. Being defensive is so natural. You know, nobody wants to feel like vulnerable in front of everybody right. else. But that's why I think it's important. And the more people we see in popular culture being like, oh, yes, I fucked up. Here's how I'm, you know, fixing it. Then maybe it will stop feeling so much pressure too to be perfect. Yes. And I think maybe we'll have fewer of these horrible, mm-hmm. annoying trends of, so-and-so said this and now it dominates the news cycle. Oh no, now so-and-so said this and now it dominates the news cycle so that we don't have to be talking about like somebody, so we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater so that somebody good can continue doing good after fucking up and um, then we're not just tearing everybody down constantly without giving them a chance to repair the world. And And I think too, um, also say, I went and got help. You know, I, somebody that, you know, like when you see the, the stuff that is, is making the news, these are, these go deeper than just fuck ups. You know, this is, um, something buried deep in somebody's psyche. You know, I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist or a therapist, so I, I don't know what the right terms would be to say it, but it's, it's more than an oops moment. And I would like to see people setting examples of saying, I started, you know, going to therapy or counseling, or I went to, uh, you know, sex rehab or whatever it is. Um, or even making the small step of being like, you know what? I don't think I like the way that I re- react to women or the way, you know, it might be a small thing. Like notice something about yourself. If a woman corrects you, does it make you way more angry than it would if a man corrected you? Yes. <laughs> you know, notice little things like that about your own self so that you can try to be better. You know, notice things like, oh, do I interrupt women more frequently? Do they have to try to get harder to make their point to me do i um cede my space to less to more marginalized voices when i can i mean a lot of times it's simple things like you know i notice biases in my own like media sharing it's like oh i will share a famous white person saying something about a black issue why wouldn't i share a less famous black person's uh, eloquent, just as eloquent thing about the same issue first. Oh, because it's slightly harder to find because most of our news sources are, you know, 
the easy, accessible, digested, sure. run by white people sources. It, why won't I share, say, uh, you know, first look for, uh, something that might shed light that comes from the community of which I'm trying to educate people about? Same with like, I'm thinking now of trans people. It's like mm-hmm. Janet Mock said something super eloquently. Why don't I repost her before I myself try to say something and sum it up? That is essentially doing the job that she's already done better than me. You know, just little things like that where if you realize, oh, huh, I have this little blind spot. Try to let's try to make ourselves improve before someone calls us out. But if they do have the wherewithal to be like, oh, yeah, that's a blind spot. Let's fucking fix that. Yeah. All of us are deeply flawed people. (laughs) We are. We are. Um, thank you so much for coming and sharing, uh, all of this stuff. Um, a lot of stuff to think about. Uh, if people want to find you on social media, um, I'll put all your, your links up. Uh, but uh, what's your uh, Twitter and Instagram? Um, I'm the Sophia T H E S O F I Y A on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, you can catch my podcast, Reality Bites, Bites with a Y, on Mondays and Wednesdays. Oh, and uh, any websites or no? Um, those are the main things. Okay, cool. Thanks, so Thank you. Man, we covered, we covered some shit. We talked about the Soviet Union. We talked about uh, how to talk to people that have cancer. Uh, we talked about the Me Too movement. We talked about mania. Fuck. We got some shit done. Um, I have one survey, a happy moment to read, and a letter that I got from somebody that asks a great question about how to deal with somebody who is um, imposing the the guest on the couch that won't leave. Um, but before I, I do that, I wanted to um, share a little bit of some thoughts I had from this week, some things I experienced, and I'm going to try to put them into a, a coherent form if I if I can. Um, I, I had kind of a disturbing... Uh, I'm not supposed to play hockey uh, because I tore... I have a partial tear in an elbow uh, tendon. But <laughs> I figure since it's going to be getting fixed anyways... And they haven't given me a date for surgery. Um, I might as well try to squeeze in some hockey. So I was uh, playing hockey Sunday night, feeling fantastic. I hadn't played in a month. It was so good to get back out there. I'm in a great mood. And we're all, uh, you know, taking our equipment off after the the skate. And we're talking about it and laughing. And the subject of football comes up. And this guy sitting next to me says, I don't want football anymore. Fuck those motherfuckers. They can't stand for the national anthem. Fuck those pieces of shit. And everybody just got kind of quiet. Nobody said anything. And I thought about saying something because I was kind of tempted to say, man, you know, I can see, I can see watching somebody gun down an innocent person sitting in their car unarmed. But I couldn't imagine what it's like watching somebody not stand when there's singing going on. Can I help you in some way? That must be traumatic. But 
this wasn't a conversation. This was like a verbal version of firing a gun, what this guy was doing. And the funny thing is, on the ice, he's a, he's a great guy. He passes the puck. Um, you know, he's got a bit of a temper, but I've seen way worse guys on the ice in terms of personalities. And I don't know where all this come from. comes from, was he raised like that? Does he, you know, is, is there a particular news channel he's watching that is feeding him the fear? Uh, that's probably, probably all the above. Who knows? I mean, I had another interaction with him about a year ago where I was loading my gear into my car and he was getting in his car and he had his kid with him. Uh, his kid's about, man, I don't know, maybe 12 years old. And, uh, and his kid had played with us as well. And I'm loading my gear into my car and, um, and he goes, ugh, a Prius. And I'm used to people, you know, kind of making fun of the Prius because there is a certain liberal stereotype that often goes with it. They're, they're shitty drive, they're timid, shitty drivers. Uh, you know, they tend to be, uh, kind of elitist, patronizing Whole Foodies. So, yeah, I have a sense of humor about it, but, you know, I just kind of joked. I said, yeah, you know, I get the last laugh when I fill it up with gas. And and he said, yeah, but you're hurting America. And I didn't even know what to say. I didn't, you know, <laughs> he clearly doesn't believe in climate change. And And then he got into his, I can't express to you the size of the truck that he got into. If it got four miles per gallon, it would be a miracle. And he laid rubber with his child sitting with him. And I'm just wondering, what's it like for that kid being around somebody that's so angry and has such a narrow point of view on life's events? And I don't know, maybe if I'd been raised in in all the circumstances that he had been, I would be just like him. I don't know. Um, and who knows? Maybe my reality is completely fucked and I'm the one who's wrong, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think I'd be doing this podcast if I thought I had no clue as to, you know, what emotional intelligence is. But the point of all of this is I got really sad because I thought the person who's president right now, he's going to leave office in two years, maybe earlier. But the people, that that is not going to solve the problem. The problem is so much deeper than that. And this is affecting my mental health and the mental health of a lot of other people. And I am a cisgendered, straight, white male. And I wake up every day with this certain amount of existential dread about the amount of anger that is being stoked in this country by an entity in the media that has no conscience. They're peddling this, this whole caravan thing you know the real caravan that's going on right now is here and it has been here 
forever. And it's called Wall Street. Right now, go to theintercept.com. If you want to find a place where you can get the truth, where they do actual award-winning journalism, and they will call the Democrats on their shit, and they will call the Republicans on their shit, go to theintercept.com. In fact, donate to it. They have an expose right now on the fact that multiple states across the country, those states have pension funds, government employees, that are being pilfered by hedge funds on Wall Street. And nobody is carrying this information. We're focused on a caravan of, I don't know, how many thousand people, 500 people. (laughs) These hedge fund managers are cutting pensioners' benefits. As I speak, they are pulling the profits out of that. They are fucking these people's lives over by the hundreds of thousands. And you don't see anything about that on any of the news networks. You know, I don't think the other ones are malicious, but they're terrible. And this is affecting my mental health. And I don't even have children. I've tried avoiding talking about politics, but I am... I, this is depressing me, and I know it's not clinical depression because I can still enjoy other areas of my life. When my clinical depression's fucking with me, I can't enjoy anything. But I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm angry. I, I, it, and, and there's just this sense of foreboding. And I was thinking about what is it that frightens somebody that has such a reaction to somebody kneeling during the national anthem. What are they afraid of? And I don't know if I know the answer to that, because you could generalize and say, well, they're afraid of black people. But I, I think that's that's clearly there's a lack of friendship with black people. Anybody that thinks the Black Lives Matter movement is unnecessary or overly dramatic. The only exception I have is when violence breaks out. Um, and a lot of times it's not portrayed accurately in the media and it was stoked by something else and it was a reaction. But enough. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with, with all of this shit. But my point is there's something genetically in us that kept us safe for a long time, which was an ability to make a generalization about something that was safe and something that was unsafe. And I think that part of our brain is still there because we want to be able to categorize the world around us, to make sense of it so that we can feel safe. And while I clearly have a problem with categorizing people whose culture you know nothing about, whose diversity you know nothing about. Um, It occurred to me tonight at my support group meeting that there are times where it is good to categorize people, but not by race or gender 
or sexuality or religion, but by emotional intelligence and then deciding who you let forward into your life, how deeply you let them into your life. That has been probably the biggest tool in me getting any kind of mental health going in my life. And the thing that I look at, because I've made the mistake of just spilling my life out to somebody who was either not equipped to hear it or didn't want to hear it or it was an inappropriate time for me to do it. And I've also not opened up to somebody that wanted to know more about what was going on with me. And what does emotional intelligence mean to me? Just off the top of my head and a couple of the things that I wrote down, a sense of boundaries, a sense of checking in with people. Is this person comfortable with the topic I've just introduced? Or are they okay on time? Am I taking up too much of their time? Checking in with them, asking questions, not being overly apologetic, but also um, not making any assumptions about what they're comfortable with. Um, getting a sense of, is that person self-reflective? Are they able to take in what it is that somebody says particularly if that person doesn't like what it is that they hear. Maybe it's a truth about themselves. You know, did, did they hurt somebody's feeling? Is that person able to sit with that for a second and take it in and reflect on it, or do they immediately become defensive? Because the latter, I don't, I don't let those people get in, into my life beyond the acquaintance stage. Uh, can, can that person show up for other people? You know, do they have a consistency in keeping their word or their promises? Um, are they capable of giving and receiving love or affection? Um, these are things just off of the top of my head. These are how I've begun to categorize people. And as I've begun to categorize people as, you know, that person, I don't talk about anything beyond sports. That guy that I was just talking about, I will talk with sports about him. But I'm not going to try to have a conversation with him about that. If he invites me into a conversation, I will. But he's shooting he's shooting a gun off with his mouth. That's not a conversation. That's a guy. He might as well be punching a wall. That is not an invitation to a conversation. And honestly, it's not worth my time. It's not my job to change his mind. If he was berating somebody who was sitting next to me, I would speak up. Um, anyway, um, here are some things that I have learned, uh, to distance myself from people or at the very least not allow them beyond a certain point in my life. If it's always about them, uh, if they just think, uh, oh, you know, just get over it. It's something that you need to just get over, um, or Here's a classic, uh, you know, you don't cut ties with family no matter what. Um, those are some of the angriest fucking people you will ever meet. Um, is that person consistent? You know, are they, are, are they, here's one, are they gossipy? I try not to let too much of my life come into contact with people that like to gossip. Um, and this is a really big one is, and I've been guilty of this, is people 
that don't really want to listen to you. They want to get high off trying to fix you. And I have been that person that has not seen that I wasn't listening. I was trying to fix somebody. And so these, I think, are important ways that we can categorize people, at least as they are today. Allow them room for growth, yes, but um, I missed out on being vulnerable for so much of my life. And it wasn't until I had to deal with my addictions to save my life that I had to begin opening up to people. And I had to learn to start doing esteemable acts, being, you know, of service, volunteering, all shit that I did not want to do. And then I began to realize, oh, I like how I feel when I do this. And I began to not hate myself so much. And people began to throw around these terms of self-esteem. You do esteemable acts, you build your self-esteem. And and then I went to another support group and I heard about self-love and setting boundaries and sticking up for yourself and taking a nap when you're tired. And terms like self-integrity, doing what's in your heart, not what you think other people want you to do. Doing the right thing, not only for other people, but for you. Having compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. I began to learn these things. And slowly, I began to like myself. And slowly, I started to care less what other people thought of me. I started to care less about trying to fix people or people please. And it started to get easier to be vulnerable. And I suddenly realized that there's a link between self-integrity taking care of yourself, being your own advocate, sticking up for yourself, making sure that you're not running around ragged trying to please everybody. There's a link between that and being able to be vulnerable instead of people-pleasing. Because the past me felt that I had to be something to you for you to like me, or at the very least, not hate me and talk to others about me. So my acts of generosity were really kind of almost manipulations of somebody because there were times I didn't want to do something, but I didn't speak up for myself and I went ahead and did it because I wanted that person to like me. Well, that's not genuine. That's not self-integrity. That's people-pleasing and that's a form of manipulating because they're not getting to see the real me. And I was doing that in place of being vulnerable because I didn't think I was worthy of being loved just by being my authentic self. It's It's been a revelation to me. Don't wait until you're 55 fucking years old to do this shit. I like how now I'm angry about it. I hope that all made sense. And if it doesn't, I'm okay with that. I'm not. I'm totally not okay with that. I'm going to be up all night. Um, this is an email I got from a woman who calls herself, uh, she asked me to refer to her as Space Invader. And 
She writes, I was wondering if you have any advice on acceptance. My husband and I took in my sister-in-law two years ago when her boyfriend essentially made her homeless by moving out with friends when they had been living together. Two years later, she's still living with us with no signs of attempting to get her life together or caring about getting her life together. We've sent her a deadline to get out nine months away, which she didn't take well. I'm struggling with some really gnarly rage. Nine months is a long time, and I don't think she'll actually be any better off after nearly three years with us, still in a crappy job she hates, still crippled by debt, and still completely entitled. I feel so taken advantage of and so frustrated by her crappy decisions, but I can't do anything about her decisions. We've set our boundary with enough time for her to get her shit together, and now I have to accept that is the situation and live with it. It's the living with it part I'm struggling with. My chest tightens when I see her car on our street. I struggle making eye contact as I'm so angry to see her. And when she brought her boyfriend home last night, the same one who kicked her out two years ago, who broke up with her two weeks ago, I may have had visions of strangling her. Clearly, not a healthy, loving situation, but not going to change anytime soon. Any advice for moving past the anger? And I wrote back and said, uh, wow, rage seems pretty appropriate, at least feeling it, uh, because that's beyond imposing on someone. And I have to wonder what the conversation between you and your husband are like, since it's his sister and ultimately his responsibility to weigh his desire to help her with his responsibility to you as his partner. Uh, I would imagine that communication could use a tune-up, and I'm thinking couples counseling would be a great place for some questions to be asked and answered that might help you not feel so voiceless, trapped, and taken for granted. At least that's what I'd be thinking. Possibly even bring in the sister after a, after a few visits. Um, typically, people that take advantage are drawn to those who avoid confrontation, which is how they're able to convince themselves that they're not imposing. But there is no victim truly as nobody is stopping you from saying, Friday, you have to move out because I can't do this anymore. And then if need be, putting her shit on the lawn. She's an adult. She'll figure it out. And if your husband doesn't want to upset her, then be willing to put his shit on the lawn. Or if it's his place, put your shit on the lawn. Either way, have fun on the lawn. That's why we have front yards. But in all seriousness, you can't put it all on her to change and see the light. Because by doing that, you're letting yourself off the hook and making yourself the victim. You can't have it both ways. You can't expect to go through life and not upset people and not get taken advantage of. And that's where support groups or counseling for codependents can help. You know, if his sister was mentally or physically disabled, uh, I think the equation would be different and we'd be talking, uh, having a completely different conversation, you know, or they had cancer or, or, or something beyond her control. Um, but you're talking about an awful long get back on your feet kind of stay. And I'm guessing she's probably pretty used to seeing herself as having it worse than everyone else and always feels like a victim who just can't catch a break. Well, playing into that is also denying her an opportunity to have to grow, which she may or may not take. That's up to her. That's his, and I hate the word, that's her journey. Um, 
So I don't know. Maybe you grew up, I'm just guessing, in an alcoholic or addictive personality home because it sounds like some, some codependence and it doesn't, you know, I don't want to get all fucking, uh, you know, pathologizing on this. But the reason I bring that up is there are support groups for codependence. There's some great 12 step ones. Um, so look into it. That's my two cents. And, uh, thanks for letting me read that on the podcast and I hope it, it helped. And she wrote me back and, they are, they've moved the, the date up. I don't believe because of anything that I wrote, but I, it did make me smile when she said, um, what did she say when she wrote, wrote back? Uh, you are so spot on. It's actually creepy. Are you outside our window? And she and her husband have now been communicating more and they have pushed up the, the move out date for them. But, I, you know, I was that guy for the longest time. I was a people pleaser. I had, uh, no boundaries and either way people coming towards me or me going to other people and I resented other people for it I expected them to change while I had the resentment totally fucked uh, and then we're gonna we're gonna wind this up with a beautiful beautiful happy moment filled out by a, a non-binary uh, person who calls themselves uh, codependent with my cat and they write like all Happy moments. Mine starts with near hospitalization. My borderline personality disorder was flaring up and I'd spiraled into a week-long episode that I thought would never end. My exhausted, overwhelmed, and absolutely incredible partner took me to the emergency room for help. I narrowly avoided hospitalization and agreed on a care plan and ongoing visits from support workers. As I left the ER, I could feel my episode breaking and knew it was over though I felt raw and exhausted. Luckily, my dad was coming to town to visit later that day, and I knew I could depend on him for love and support. Fast forward a few hours, and there my dad and I are, two sober alcoholics, sat in a bar, awkwardly clutching lemonades and waiting for the gig to start. They were watching a music gig. Maybe it was the fact that I had gone 36 hours without sleep. Maybe it was the vulnerability I felt from my episode finally coming to an end, but I decided to come out to my dad as non-binary on a whim. Dad, I blurted out, I've been thinking a lot about my gender identity lately. As you can see, I've cut my hair off and started dressing in a more masculine way sometimes. There's some days when I still like to wear lipstick and dresses, but I don't feel like a girl or a boy. I'm just me. I'm non-binary. My dad looked at me with so much love and compassion. He grasped my hands from across the table and squeezed them. He smiled at me widely and said, Lex, I'm so happy for you. I'm so excited for this new chapter in your life. And I love you for who you are. I might not always get your pronouns right, but I'll try my best to not get angry when you correct me. I love you. I couldn't have imagined a better reaction. I felt loved, supported, and seen. I felt free to be myself, and I was overwhelmed with happiness that my dad accepted me. We watched the gig together, shoulder to shoulder and grinning at each other intermittently. The musician, Glenn Tilbrook, who is fucking amazing, uh, is my dad's favorite, and I'd grown up listening to his band, Squeeze. By the way, go listen to the song, Another Nail in My Heart, right now. Actually, as soon as I finish reading this, go listen to Another Nail in My Heart. Or the best of Squeeze. Squeeze greatest hits. God damn it, I'm spiraling. 
Towards the end of the set, he played a song called Little Ships about his children growing up and his role as a dad. My dad and I looked at each other with tears streaming down our cheeks and he squeezed my hand. I felt so incredibly full of joy and my heart seemed to grow a hundred sizes. That morning, borderline personality disorder had taken me to the ER, but in that moment, I knew I could feel love so intensely because my BPD also gives me that gift. Truly amazing. That is one of my favorite surveys that I have read on the show. That is like the show in a fucking nutshell. Is just looking for the the growth. You know, what can we learn from this shit sandwich that reality throws us sometimes? And can we find connection in there? Can we... No, I'm sorry to repeat myself. Anyway, if you're out there, I... Uh, and I mean outside my window, please leave my front yard. Because I got to start putting somebody's shit out there. I don't know who. Because I live alone. I'm going to start putting my shit out there because I'm sick of my bullshit. And I've been wanting to move my shit out for 55 fucking years. I'm going to be honest with you. I've had an ass full of me. And I'm setting down some fucking rules. I don't know where this bit is going. So let's just say... You're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.